disagree, but commit. Yes. And be one team, no matter what. And I took that with me through my whole career. And I stopped being a consensus leader of, oh, I want everyone to be on the same page and let's make sure we're all getting along. No, we got to make really good decisions. And then if you are truly a team player, we will spend time debating. We will spend time seeking the right answer. But when we make a decision or it has to be made by a certain person because you can't come to conclusion, you have got to have the value to disagree and commit and you go out there and execute like crazy. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And as the name suggests, this is a very different podcast. As a matter of fact, some people call it an odd cast because it turns out that real different conversations about business and life are hard to come by. And I believe that uh, we humans learn more from real conversations than just about anything else. And to put it bluntly, I think we're drowning in simplistic, contrived, problematic business and self-help BS. And I think the antidote to that is real different conversations with legendary people. People that I hope inspire, educate, and uh, maybe even a little uh, entertain you. And that's what we have today. On this episode, um, how to go from chairman uh, from sales rep to chairman of the board in Silicon Valley with the amazing Elisa Steele. Today, she is the chairman of two publicly traded companies, Cornerstone On Demand and Namely. She's also on the board of $25 billion uh, publicly traded Splunk. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that I have a business relationship with Splunk because frankly, I think Splunk is one of the most important tech companies on the planet. Elisa is also the former CEO of two publicly traded companies, namely and Jive. And prior to that, she was the chief marketing officer of Skype and Yahoo. To say she's had a legendary career is putting it mildly. We have a powerful conversation about how to go from sales rep to chairman and CEO. How along her path, when she got to CMO, what it was like to make the transition to CEO and what she's learned working in massive tech companies like Microsoft and Yahoo to smaller, more entrepreneurial companies. She also has some incredible advice for women on how they can design their careers and have kids too. And pay special attention to her thoughts on how to disagree and commit, which I think is one of the most powerful skills in business. Elisa is a powerhouse executive and she's a ton of fun and I think you're going to love her uh, as much as I loved having this conversation with her. Now, as you know, every company needs a growth strategy, plan, and platform. And our friends at Oracle NetSuite are the number one cloud platform for high growth companies. Uh, NetSuite is actually the business system for over 19,000 high growth companies from over 200 countries. Um, Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today and get your free guide, the seven key strategies to grow profits at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. Because if you don't know your numbers, you can't grow your business. (laughs) I also want to thank you for making my new uh, marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing, number one in marketing and business a little while ago on Apple Podcasts. Um, there are almost 800,000 podcasts. I don't know how many marketing ones there are or business ones, but there's a ton. And, um, you know, the fact that, um, many of you have uh, gotten into it, uh, is really heartwarming. Thank you so much. If you haven't checked it out and you're in marketing, it's actually quite different from this podcast. It's short, it's educational, 
and it examines the mindsets and strategies required to win. Um, you can find Lockhead on Marketing at Lockhead.com, Apple Podcasts, um, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and virtually every other major podcast player. Now, also, I want to ask you, are you in sales? Um, if you are, it's time to harness the power of machine learning to close more sales. My friends at Spiro.ai are the world's leading proactive relationship management platform. They help you work smarter and close faster. Check out Spiro.ai. That's Spiro.ai today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. There was only one thing I wanted early in my career, and it definitely wasn't about working with other people. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't. Um, and in, Well, the only thing I wanted was financial independence. Hmm. And, you know. And why did that matter? Um, because I was, I was motivated by the fact, or maybe even terrified by the fact that I wouldn't have choice in life if I didn't have resources. And if you don't have resources, then decisions in your life are up to somebody else. And could you say that again? Resources equal choice. Yeah, resources equal choice. So if you don't have choice, if you don't create resources for yourself and resources generally are assets, you know, th things, things that help you make a decision you want to do and, and creating some wealth for yourself to make those choices is critical in life. Otherwise it's up to someone else. Maybe it's up to someone you trust, a family member, a brother, a father, a mother, a, a, a spouse. It could be up to somebody else if you really have no resources. So I was just tremendously motivated to gain financial independence, not to be wealthy and be quote unquote rich, but to be able to make choices in my life of what I could do and not leave that up to somebody else. And so it was really clear, like, oh, I need to go into sales because, <laughs> because I want to make money. And it's not to be shallow. It was actually because I wanted, I never thought I wanted to get married. I wanted to be an independent woman. And I knew to do that. From what age? I just knew. I just knew along the way. I, I don't think it was, it wasn't an aha. It was, you know, I'm going to, I was always a student, a, a, a very studious student. I wanted to do well. And then when I went to get a job, I wanted to go into sales because I want, I, it was just so clear what success looked like. That was the other thing about independence. If I went into sales, then it's really clear if I'm successful. I either yeah. made or, or overachieved my number or I didn't. It's a yes or a no that I made the number. Nobody can be subjective about that. But if I go into some one of these other fields that were like a complete mystery to me, how do I know if I'm actually going to make it? How do I know? So I went into sales and I, lo and I, I loved it because I always love serving what, customers. What were you, where did you start sales? Uh, my first job was, um, it was called Associate Account Executive for AT&T Technology Services for big enterprise customers. They hired two college kids in the Western region, just two. And everybody else was 40 plus. So it was me and another gal who were both 21, 22 years old. And we worked out of the 795 Folsom office. And, you know, I entered this corporate world. This was before, um, this is when AT&T was very, you know, 
and they are again today, that industry has gone through a tremendous change, but it was a very old grounded culture that was not designed for new college students. But there was a very special leader in the Western region. He, he managed, you know, a $2 billion number and he was very inclined to bring in young talent. And this was nine. Now this is like 1990, right? I mean, yeah. we were just getting email accounts then. Like it yeah. just is hard I, for people, I think, to imagine. No, it was but, cool to have a fax number on your car. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, we had those mobile phones we could take in the car as salespeople that are bigger those than the bricks. bionic man. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, they just, they're really, really heavy. But anyways, we joined the company and they hired us. And, and, and um, you know, I spent eight years there and I learned and learned and learned and learned, whether in the classroom because they invested in me and sent me to training or whether it was in the field and on the road because I got to work with all of these people who were so much more experienced than me. And I, it was a gift at the beginning of my career to work there. But it was sales and it was, you know, go sell stuff. I, I love sales. I mean, I started off as an entrepreneur and then when my first business failed, I got a sales job and exactly the same thing. And the interesting thing I see today in business is there's a lot of people who get very confused about what a result is, like what it is they're playing for. And I think one of the gifts of starting early in sales is even if you move out of sales, as both of you and I did, you, you still develop a radar for like, okay, well, what is it we're doing? Okay, we're, hoot, we're hunting moose. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's right. It's super, super clear, not only on the number of what you're trying to achieve, but the other thing that happens in sales and I always looked for people in on teams, right, who had good amount of sales experience from the standpoint of you learn how to solve problems. You learn how to solve problems every day. Everything that's between you and achieving your quota is an obstacle. And some of it's those a, obstacles are internal, right? Yep, it's, it, I was just going to say that it could be a customer complaint that you're trying to deal with. It could be a service issue. It could be a product deficiency. It could be the way the comp plan is structured. Like the list of things that salespeople have to deal with to get to the end goal are pretty thorny. And, you know, if you can, especially in big B2B enterprise. Yeah. And if you can get through that, you can get through a lot and it means that you have to create relationships and it means that you have to create trust and it means that people want to do things with you and for you for joint success. So as a salesperson, I think you learn how to build a team around you, even though you're not quote unquote a manager, you're building a team around you to satisfy that customer so that you can get to the end goal. Now, I would describe you today as being somewhat of a hard charger, right? You're, I don't know. I didn't know you would describe me that way. Well, I don't okay. know. I think you are. <laughs> you come across as a, a as a butt kicker and a result producer and a hard charger. And, and so were you that way in the beginning or, or where? Um, well, I guess I'll just tell you a quick story. I mean, when I first started in this job, this associate account executive job, my job for six months was supposed to be in the car and go out and see these big enterprise customers with all of these incredibly experienced account executives. And they all were at that time seemed really, you know, old to me, 40 plus they were 40, Way 20, young. 20 years, my senior and more. And I started doing that, Chris. And at first it was fascinating. I got to sit in these customer meetings where they'd be meeting with the CIO or the CEO of these incredible Bay area companies. And I got to be in the room. I felt so privileged. So 
what happened, I, I would do a lot of homework and, and study for these meetings because I didn't, I wanted to make sure I could carry some weight in these meetings because I was the young one who, you know, had no experience. But what happened after a couple of months is um, I just got really bored because I wasn't accountable for anything. Mm. I kind of became the hanger on who went to all these meetings. And if one nice account executive would take me, I got to go out of the office that day. So I realized very early that each of these account executives who were so successful, they weren't just successful because they were good with their customers. They were successful in managing their internal quota. And they were figuring out, look, I've got 20 enterprise customers, but I spend time with 10 of them because they're the ones who are going to buy from me this quarter, this year. And I don't have time for these other 10. So what I did was I started looking at, oh, what are the dog accounts? Because no one's spending time with the dog account. So I took kind of the bottom two or three from everybody's bag and I put together my own bag and I went to the sales manager and I said, Elisa's got hey, a brand new bag. <laughs> hey, yeah, exactly. And, and they were laughing at me, right? And they're like, look, this young kid has come in. She wants all the dog accounts. We're nuts not to give it to her here. And so I got that assignment and I went out on the road and I started calling on dog account after dog account after dog account. Well, guess what? They're not all dog accounts. You shaved the dog. <laughs> they're, 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 many of them were just customers who didn't hear from us for forever or had a service issue that never, all of these things we were talking about before. And so I was able to go out very young and take on these big customers and figure, I didn't figure them all out, but I figured some of them out. And I more than made my quota that year. Well, that year was crazy because I I remember it's so long ago, but I remember, you know, I won the VCR, the VCR one month, and I won the dinner <laughs> the next month, and then I won, and then you know they sent me a note and said, you "Look, you maxed out, you, you maxed out your comp plan, like you're done for the year." And so I um I had a great experience working there, and I I've always felt the way I tell my kids this all the time. There's no problem that you can't solve. And if you hit conflict, if you hit trouble, don't run. Mm. Dissect it. There's always a source of a problem. There's always a reason. Not easy. And, and you know, every, some problems are long to solve. Like it might take years to solve a problem. But you don't run from conflict. You figure it out. And then you decide, okay, how am I going to handle this? Or how are we going to handle this? Because usually a problem definitely requires more than one person if it's of consequence for sure and so how do you make the transition from sales and in, in, into marketing well i made the transition into marketing um you know frankly and honestly is because i got pregnant and i didn't want to and my i had gone from wow like I was managing a local set of customers and then a zip code and then a territory and then a region and then a national branch and I had to travel all the time. And then I had a global responsibility. And then I suddenly, I did get married. <laughs> I did get pregnant. And I wanted, I didn't want to travel. And I just had this um, idea that if I could, if I had this experience in zip codes and territories and regions, could I actually have a bigger effect on industry mm. and take that knowledge and take it to a marketing type job? And so that's what I did. And I went to Sun Microsystems and I started their first marketing um, attempt with Java. And then grew and then took, I think I had every role in marketing between Sun, NetApp, and well, others, Yahoo, Skype. I, I, 
every marketing role probably in the book, except ones that have now been created today that didn't exist when right. I was in marketing. <laughs> right. There was no digital, there was no all. social media marketing I've back done then. I've every one of them. Yeah. And so um, what do you, like, what do you think about that transition now? If I was, a, if I was a salesperson and I realized, hey, I, I love selling and I certainly had this feeling, but obviously I didn't get pregnant, but I, I did have this feeling like I could impact the company and the industry more from marketing. Because yeah. marketing was setting a very big agenda That's right. as opposed to managing an account, yeah. which, which I, I'm not being pejorative about in any way, but I, I wanted to have a bigger, broader impact and I saw a pathway in marketing. Yeah, well, that happened to me too. Um, but I would say that sales and marketing are so different today that I would give different career advice. I think sales and marketing both are incredibly analytical. Um, the only way to really know what was going on with the customer when I was in sales, frankly, is to go see them, get in your car, go see them, spend time with them, spend time in the team, um, go to their staff meetings, take them to lunch. Like you weren't going to find out anything about that customer except how much revenue they were billing with your company. Today, you can find out so much about that customer's business, about that customer's challenges, about what that customer is trying to accomplish. And if you don't understand data, analytics, um, all of the things that the internet and the age of data deliver to us, you can't be successful in both marketing and sales. I think at the end of the day, humans sell and buy from humans, but there's a whole different skill set that is super, super important to go to market. Yeah, I, I for sure see that. And I, of course, we, you and I are not going to disagree about how important data is. Yeah, that's right. No, not on that topic. We're on the same page there, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and so you ultimately end up having some gigantic marketing jobs. I mean, the biggest marketing jobs in tech, certainly some of them. I mean, so contrast, you know, early days marketing of Java to uh, Carol Bart's days at Yahoo mm -hmm, by way mm -hmm, of example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I loved those jobs. I loved Yahoo, Skype, Microsoft. They were um, challenging, um, big, big scale. And I think most interestingly for me, a combination of enterprise and consumer. Yeah. And that my, my enterprise background was, I didn't realize how, when I went into those other jobs and I really thought I kind of changed my perspective as a marketer going from enterprise to consumer, that enterprise background was the foundation, the critical knowledge to really drive a consumer marketing strategy what, what? at Yahoo, your, Skype, hold on, hold and on. Microsoft. So <laughs> your enterprise sales skills helped you do consumer marketing? Enterprise sales and enterprise marketing. Absolutely. How so? Because most people say it's the other way around, yeah. right? Enterprise companies want to feel more consumery today. Well, from a from a product experience and a service experience, yes. But from a go-to-market experience in terms of how consumer companies generally or digital consumer companies make money is through B2B understanding and advertising and selling to big companies. And so that was, that's a really important monetization of how you actually do consumer marketing, not meaning that that's your message in consumer marketing, but those two things have to work really well together. And your strategy has to be end to end. You can't have one consumer strategy and then a separate B2B strategy and think they're going to come together. Right. So that was kind of the magic of, um, in the mic, in the kind of Skype days where we, 
you know, Microsoft brought together both Skype and Link into one division with us because it was really taking that theory and saying, well, we need, you know, Link was the enterprise messaging at the time from Microsoft and Skype would, had just been acquired, which was the consumer ability to have that kind of communication and putting them together into one organization and saying, how do we leverage product? How do we leverage technology? How do we leverage go to market? How do we leverage the consumer experience to the B2B experience and make it better? So I think they play off each other big time. And what's it like to be at high levels of marketing inside a company like Microsoft? Um, a lot of fun. Yeah. And a lot of hard work. Yeah. Um, I think marketing is so important to be horizontal in the company. And it's one of the, there are others, you know, CFO, we, there's other C-level jobs that are horizontal, but the marketing job really takes on a lot of things that are not in the job description if you're going to do it really well. And what's not in the job description for the CMO is bringing together the unity of the team behind the company's identity or behind the brand strategy so that the whole team is working together. The head of engineering understands what yes. they're building and why, right? And that and the head of service is understanding what tone and and messaging and, and customer service they're supposed to be delivering to be supportive of what the ultimate goal, vision, and brand of the company is. So, you know, I I I think actually CMOs is a great um kind of groundwork to become a CEO because it is a horizontal job and because you do have to understand how to motivate and work across all of the C-suite and into the company with teams of people, of engineers and product designers and, um, um, you know, finance folks and just the whole list goes on. I don't think a CMO is successful if they're just an expert in their field. They actually have to be successful by being an expert in their field and understanding how to then motivate and drive the whole team to work together, which is why they're so important, I think, to the CEO and what the CEO's agenda is. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. And the other thing, and look, I know it's a tall order, but to go even a little deeper on your comment, if you take engineering slash product and the field slash sales I believe that the sales organization needs to feel like they they love marketing, like that marketing's a giant of giant course. asset and ally. And I think the engineering team needs to feel the same way. And with the CMO specifically, I think if the field is not dying to take the CMO on sales calls, we got a problem. Yeah, that's right. And if the engineers aren't inspired that that CMO is sort of pioneering the category and and sort of representing their products in a really great way that makes them proud, yeah, right? That's right. And and you know, I think that um, it's hard um, because sometimes you don't have that marketing doesn't have that credibility to start. You have to earn it. I remember my first big marketing job, kind of being before CMO, CMO big. Like it was my first VP of marketing job. Like I really wanted to do well and. You know, I thought I'd get all the support from the sales leaders because they knew I was a good salesperson. So wouldn't they give me all their support? So I go into my first executive staff with all of the sales leaders and the CRO. 
and I'm doing my first presentation on how I'm going to generate great leads for them. And we are going <laughs> to like kick ass on new revenue goals. And they gave me so much support. I mean, they clapped at the end of the presentation. And I thought I made it. This is so awesome. Marketing has a seat at the table. And the sales guy, the sales ops guy says, oh, um, Elisa, thanks so much for coming. Just one more thing. And I'm walking out of the room and he picks up this black book. It's a binder. It's a three ring binder. And he says, I just want to make sure you have the list of customers in the black book that marketing's not allowed to contact. I open up the book. It's 450 customers. <laughs> <laughs> there was no trust that sales had in marketing. Uh, they listened to my la la and they said, go try to prove it again you had with to get, all the dog accounts. Yes. <laughs> but don't you touch these golden accounts that we think we have full control over. And this was right at the beginning of digital marketing. So they had no understanding that, hey, the customers are getting touched whether you give me a black book or not. But that was... I remember that meeting to this day of just feeling so downtrodden, like, wow, you just, like, I thought I, I earned your trust. Well, I didn't earn their trust. And so that took a long time, right, of getting that black book out of our, out of our vocabulary and that that wasn't the way we were going to work together. But I think mar it is hard for marketing in enterprise because in consumer, marketing is a revenue generator. It's a little bit different, right? You have to own a number um, generally. So um, that was hard work. Yeah. And but I'm I think curious, I've learned, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to circle back to your decision to go into marketing um, because of travel and having kids. As you look back, was that like... That was perfect. It, it worked. It, yeah, it totally worked for me. It was, I mean, I was just being honest on why. Um, but it was a great catalyst for me to do something that I wound up absolutely loving. But you and still had these giant jobs that required you to work yeah, well, 60, 80 hour a week. Well, life changes, right? And, and you know, one thing I will tell you is I think I'm a, I'm a prioritizer and I want to do different things in my life. And so even though I made that decision at that point in time, you know, as I grew and learned how to run a family and be a part of a family and wanted my career and had a marriage that was really supportive of that, I could figure those things out. So I started solving those problems, even though those problems seemed daunting at the time. Like, okay, I'm going to have to dissect this problem and figure out because I don't want to give up one thing to get another. I want all of it. Right. I, I want the career. Wonder I want woman. my babies. <laughs> I want my family. I want... I want all of it. So how do I figure out how to do that? And it's super hard, but it's, it's something you have to work at every single day. And some days it doesn't feel so good. And some days you so do better than a, the next. If I was a high potential 25-ish to 35-ish gal, how do I have it all? What would you teach me? Um, well, the first thing I would teach you, which is probably not what you expect, is um, that if you want to have children that you need to take your maternity leave, you need to help others um, um, help you to get through it. I didn't do any of those things. I mean, <laughs> I didn't take maternity leave. I worked through the whole thing. I, um, my second child, I did it better. My first child, I did it horrible. And um, to this day, when I see young women pregnant in the workplace, whether they want to talk to me or not, I walk up to them and say, I wanna talk to you about your maternity leave. <laughs> What's your plan? Because <laughs> your plan can't be, I got to check in my job every day to make sure I still have one. 
it just it just can't be you're not you're not able to be a whole person if if that's what you're gonna do and i oh, I, oh hopefully i won't fuck this up i'm pretty sure i saw recently on the news uh is this right that we federally have no federally mandated um time off for women and frankly for men as well who have children in this country well, there's, there's different policies for for i don't it's not federal i don't really i don't really know the actual policy but companies are struggling with this between maternity and paternity leave and what are the yeah. what are the policies um but my point was more along the lines of a woman in her career not being able to make those choices and feel confident that there'll be other forks in the road where they can still invest in their career. And yeah, that's and I really, think really there's important. a lot of women who, um, I'm just seeing if I can find it quickly. I saw this thing on the news not that long ago, and I swear it was like that the United States doesn't have a federal policy, and it's one of some infinitesimal, uh, infinitesimal uh, countries that don't. But Well, we definitely don't, don't was, have, we definitely don't have the time or the length that other countries have. Um but I just think yeah, it's so important. Yeah, there's some countries important. that it's like, what, what was it, it, like Sweden or something? It was like a year and a half. And I think Canada's nine months. And our and culture is is different. And I was, you know, coming more from the, the standpoint of when women are in the workplace and they choose to be in the workplace and then they want to have children, they choose to have children, they've got to have optionality to be able to do those things at different times in their career and not get, quote unquote, behind. And part of that is having a great leader. Or just having a, I mean, you almost don't want to call it a great leader. It's like, and you want to have a leader who is going to be fair and equitable about those things and that, that women don't fall behind because they were gone from the workplace. Yeah. And, um, and I think it, you, I mean, I hope it's not as true anymore, but it was definitely true. I mean, that's why I was checking in every day. Cause I was like this, I don't think this thing is going to go right if I'm not involved. Now, maybe that was 80% me being fearful of it and 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 my company was really supportive i don't know but it's it's, but it's you a think hard, it's different today i, I think it you could think be different I'm, in different companies and i think that um if i'm the, uh, if i'm having if i'm a gal having my first baby that i could take the nine months off or the six months off or whatever well whatever you're not, you're not gonna get nine months you're gonna <laughs> not, get more like 16 weeks but um yes i do we don't get and to, i think there, there I are no think, companies that give six months off in our I, in our world if you're going to extend and extend and extend but not in the united states no wow. i mean that's that's not going to happen um but i do think that companies are recognizing and need the workforce of both men and women men are now getting paternity leave that's great we need that help in the household both the men and the women contributing so um well, and here's the other interesting thing. I read an article not long ago in the journal about how, quote unquote, men are being left behind in the education system. And I don't know what the exact numbers are, Lisa, but we're now, if we're not at the point, we're reaching a point where 60% of the graduates are female. And the number of, on a percentage basis, women graduating and the number of men is shrinking. And the article that I read, incidentally, was about how high potential women have less and less choices as for mates <laughs> that was the but i thought about it from a recruiting and company building perspective which is like um hey and i'm going to use this word on purpose guys pay attention here we're living in a world where if we're not there now we're going to be there soon where 60 percent of the graduates are female and that number is going to probably continue to uh, trend upward and so 
if we don't sort of make this a, a legendary environment for gals and do what we can to help them, to use your phrase, have it all, we're not going to be able to hire. Yeah. And, and, and having it all is a different definition for different people. I mean, I know what it was for me and what I wanted in my career and what I wanted at home. And I think that women and men have the choice to describe what that looks like. That being said, women who are career minded, you know, it, the numbers aren't really changing in the way that we want them to change for females to be represented on boards, for females to be represented in the top companies in the world, for females to be represented in the CEO ranks, right? And so how do we change that? And there's so much effort going into it. But at the end of the day, I really believe that the only people who can change it, it's not a big program, it's not a big quota, it's you and it's me and it's our colleagues and it's the people that we know and it's a network effect of each of us taking a new and different action every week, every quarter, whatever it is, to make a different decision than the path of least resistance, to keep a rec open longer because we need diverse candidates, to specifically recruit females to boards who guess what? No, don't ask the question. Do they have public company board experience on a board? The answer is no. There's like a few hundred maybe women who do, but they can't represent all the boards in the world. This is so what Coco Brown from Athena says. It's like, well, let's get, meritocracy, my ass, if you set a definition that like- Well, very Coco's few- right. And, and, you know, when we give um, men and women, but in particular, females have been underrepresented on boards. There's many, many, many qualified women to be on boards. They need that first shot. I got a first shot and now I'm, I get to answer the question. Yes, I have experience and I'm on now multiple public boards and, and some pretty serious companies. And, and I can give somebody a shot too. And I have, and my colleague can give somebody a shot. And then you start adding that up and you go, we can make a difference every single day. So that motivates me and gets me excited because, you know, it's kind of the same dynamic that excited me in being a manager at work is how do we get the team to really be a great performing team and we can make a difference by actually making different decisions to get females on boards or to get minorities represented um and it might not even just be boards it's right in in the c-suite on the management team so Um, that's how I feel like let's take those micro actions every day and actually make a difference in somebody's life, somebody with a name, somebody we know, somebody we can do something different for. And so you sort of become a role model. And so how does it, I mean, did you know you were going to become a role model? How does it feel? You mean being on a board or? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're a role model in terms of having a, a legendary executive career period, full stop. And then, of course, you're a gal. And now you're at that stage of your career per kind of where we started, where you're the been there, done that, got the black belt and that, and then some gal. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. I don't, I mean, I think I, I don't think of myself as a role model, but I do think of myself as someone who can offer um, support and um, insight to people who might, not have the same experience as me, just like others who have different experiences than me can offer me support and insight. And I think that's really, really important. And it's also really fun um, because I, you know, you can think of times in your career where, oh my gosh, I wish I had that person offering me that support and insight, or I wouldn't have made that humongous mistake. But guess what? Because I made that humongous mistake, I can now give you a story or help or insight to have you take a path that maybe 
isn't the one that you were originally considering, but now have some additional um, data to make that decision. Sometimes you just have to jam your finger into the light socket and find out for yourself, right? Yeah, <laughs> and you do, and that's what happens after 30 years. And it is um, um, helpful, you know, to provide that to people. And it's also great to have the opportunity to do that. Now, I'm curious, how does being a two-time CEO change the way you now think about CMOs? That's such a great question. And it it really changed. Really? Yeah. It so really changed for me. Well, first of all, I did I I I, you know, when I my first CEO job, I was promoted from CMO and I was so foolish to At say jive. Yeah. And I said, Oh, well, I'm not gonna replace myself because I know how to do that job. I'll just keep I'll just do the CEO job and kind of do the CMO job on the side. Well, I mean, just shoot me in the head. That was just dumb. And it, it should have been called out as dumb by myself and others around me. But I just felt like I got this thing, not because I thought I was a superhuman, but more because I had set that strategy in place and I couldn't let it go. It was a weakness. It wasn't a strength. And then when I did let it go, um, you know, it was a little bit late, but I did let it go and I figured out how to and I don't think this is specific to CMO, Chris, this is why I'm pausing is I figured out how to hire those who were different than me. Yes. And I really needed to have a CMO in the seat, whether it was this who, job. Who did you hire as the CMO, Jive? I didn't actually hire a CMO. Oh, you never got I there. Hired, I didn't hire at that level. Yeah. But um, the CMO profile that I needed to work with, with someone who had all of that experience. We were talking about, well, oh, I've done every single job in marketing. Well, not the ones who were just, that were created in the last 10 years. Right, not the new I've ones. been in the C-suite or doing the CEO job and I haven't had those jobs. So I really look to hire marketers who are much more modern, who understand the digital landscape, who understand the, um, um, the, the statistics around what they need to do. At the same time, hiring for I really, really, really want you to have sales experience because if you haven't walked in those shoes, we're going to have this academic marketing conversation and this real on-the-ground sales conversation and never shall the two come together. And that's at Nate, when I was CEO the second time, what I did, and I think some many companies are doing this now, is I actually put sales and marketing together under a chief revenue officer. And Splunk is organized this way. Yeah. And I, I organized Namely that way. I thought it was really important because it's a 360 degree experience with the customer that matters. And that is from everything from the first touch all the way through to, to the, the closed deal, the lost deal, or the renewal. So I think about it a lot differently than mm. I did when I was a CMO. And if you told me as a CMO that I was going to, that you wanted to do this structure of the chief revenue officer and marketing and sales going to be like, you're, you're nuts. I'm not going to do that. But guess what? I think that's where we are. And I don't think that means a CMO is less important. I don't think that means a head of sales is less important. I think what it means is the customer is so important. The customer is first and the experience of knitting that together has to be done really, really well, mm. especially in enterprise so, so software. So let me push on you because if you were the CEO and I was a CMO candidate and you told me that, I'd tell you to go F yourself. <clears throat> I was wondering when you were going to use that word on our <laughs> podcast. Jeez, it took you a while. Um, I think, 
I think that well, I believe um, the old quote: "Marketing's too important for the marketing department." Right? It's, it's look. I understand what you're saying, and I do think I don't think there's a one size fits. I don't think there's a one size fits all for most things in life. There's always an optimized model for what you're experiencing. Yeah. So look, this isn't a one size fits all, and you're right. There's certain people who are going to be attracted to certain types of jobs with a certain type of reporting structure. What what I'm really focused on is how do you make the customer the most successful they can be because you need a differentiated experience, a differentiated product and a seamless, beautiful kind of interaction. And so how do you do that? How do you set your company up to provide that in the best way? I think the biggest marketing aha I had was really late in, in my quote unquote marketing career, which is when I really started getting into product experience Mm. and realizing that, you know what? This whole marketing thing is about the product experience. And, and you know, to be a marketer, you got to understand that and really sit with your designers and your engineers and um, build experiences that create the marketing experience that is real and true to the depths of the product. The product executes on the promise. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. And when you have any kind of diversion from that prom- from that product um, execution to the brand promise, you're, you're kind of, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I, you, you, you walked a path. I think a lot of people want to walk. First of all, um, becoming a CMO, multi-time CMO, and then making the transition to CEO. And so if I was a marketing person wanting to make, walk in your footsteps, what are the key things about becoming a great CMO and then a great CMO who transitions to CEO? Um, I would just focus on one thing to answer your question uh, would be as a CMO, it's those comments I made about being a horizontal leader, about being a leader who puts the puzzle together for the company. That why you, you think a CMO is potentially a good candidate because they have that broad view? Because they have that broad view and because they are looking at that holistic picture and not just one piece of the puzzle. And you need people to look at one piece of the puzzle, by the way, to build great product or to um, drive the right business model or, you know, whatever job that is. But the puzzle and the beauty of the puzzle coming together as one seamless image, that is the CMO's job. That's the CMO's job. And if they can do that, they can do that potentially for the company as a CEO. But the reality is that the CEO job is really different and um, it's different than any job. Forget, you know, both you and I have been CMOs, so we've been spending time on talking about that, but the CEO job is different than any other job in the company, obviously, because there's only one of them. And because there's only one of them, there's certain things that you uniquely have to spend time on to do well. And you can't delegate it and you can't count on someone else and you have to deliver that for your company for your people for your team for your board for your customers and for your partners and i would say that is a skill that could come from the cmo office it could come from the cfo office it could come from you know any office um outside the company but i think that's the key especially if you're um um you know usually companies need a new ceo because something has to change like there's some CEOs that are retiring and going into the sunrise, but that, that, or the sunset. Spend, excuse me. That spend but, time with their family it, shit is normally bullshit, but, right? But it's not. It's not really what's happening. There's usually a change that's needed at the company, and therefore, that job by definition on day one is hard. Right. 
It's generally not going great. Yeah. And right? so you've got to go in and make people decisions and strategy decisions and, and you have to listen and you have to spend time with your customers and, you know, create that new vision of the puzzle for the team to sign up for or whatever you have to do to get the right people and, and resources in place to do that. And so I think that that role as the CEO is really what to focus on. I do think CMOs are a good training ground, but so are some other C-suite roles, I think. Now, I've been lucky enough over the last little bit to have some pretty great conversations with you know people like Randy Comazar and Subar Samian sort of are in the front of my mind about how they think about their next career opportunity and what sort of drives them to make a shift, whether that's, you know, um, regardless of the title, regardless of the role. And so, you know, what makes you take the CMO job at Yahoo? What makes you take the CEO job at, uh, well, originally the CMO CMO job at Jive and then the CEO job, like what is the lens you look at? And frankly, now as a board member, what's the lens you use to say, fuck yeah, I really want to do that. That's exciting. That turns me on. And I don't think so. Yeah. So uh, there's two different things. I mean, one is very clear, right? You have to believe in the business, think that there's a market for it, think that there's unique opportunity to excel. And that's like kind of the baseline of, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that that is something that I could help with or be involved in. But when I look back on my career, one of the things that Um, kind of astounded me that I actually didn't realize until someone like you was asking me a lot of questions (laughs) was um, except for the CEO role, even though the titles sound generic, none of the roles that I took after being a sales rep had ever existed before Mm. in the definition in which you, you took them. Yeah. And it, and there were jobs created for you. Absolutely. Yeah. At, at, I mean, several times. Um, because I saw something that I wanted to go do. And I will say the leadership at Sun, the leadership at um, NetApp, like I saw something I wanted to go do or a white space. And they said, okay, let's create that job. And that was amazing as a young person, you know, trying to figure things out. And we basically created a job for me. And then I created a job for for people to be on that team and so on and so on. And so uh, that is exciting to me. And I didn't, actually think about it that way until I had the reflection of every single one of those jobs had not been defined in the way that we were defining it going forward. And that gave me opportunity to do something different. And I think that's what drives me. I want to do something different than what has been done. You know, you're playing my favorite song now. I guess I didn't really mean to do an advertisement for you, but, but maybe that's why we get along. I don't know, but I didn't, I, you're conscious of that and you have that messaging. I was not conscious of it's that. It's not messaging Well, for me. It, pardon me. I didn't mean to say that. No, no, but it's like, it's a, it, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean for you to perceive the way that I said that, but I was not conscious mm. of that until I was reflective of it and I realized, see. oh my gosh. You're charting a path. That, that, that is true. And I look back and I can give the example after example after example of each of these roles. And now it gave me insight to myself. Yeah. So that's all I'm saying. Very interesting. So, so one big thing you're attracted to is sort of a new job that's being kind of configured in the way you want it configured. Yeah. And something that hasn't been done before. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a, um, I, I want to, I, I like to create 
I like to see if things work differently. I like to um, put teams of people okay, together so now, to do something. Now you're really, you know, I had this thought the other day. I wrote it down. Um, legendary marketing and, frankly, legendary companies take the um, impossible and turn it into the inevitable. It's that, right? It's something about pioneering a new thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's giving me this memory of like the first marketing t-shirts we did at Sun mm. um, uh, about, you know, achieving the impossible. And, and you were at Sun meant. when Sun was fucking Sun. It was awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. The most important company in technology. I mean, Java, Solaris. I mean, the servers, you know, themselves, of course. This sounds um, so simple, but... Um, Scott McNeely created this culture at Sun that taught me this, that now today, again, it sounds so simple, but I didn't understand it until it was right in front of me at Sun and I took it through my whole career. As a leader, I got a lot of training at AT&T. I told you about that and the classrooms and the uni AT&T University and oh my God, I learned how to overcome objections and sell <laughs> and not to sell past the clothes and how to negotiate and the art of this and the art of that. It was amazing. But I was a leader who was a consensus builder just by the nature of my personality. Mm. And when I went to Sun, you know, really important decisions were being made at any company, but Sun was like right in the middle of the, the beginning of the internet and making things possible. And Scott had this thing around, if you, you have to agree to disagree and then you have to execute. Yes. You cannot be an outlier and then say, that's why it failed. I said, you can't be the smartest Once the one in the room. decision is made, you have to sign and, off. And think about it today, right? You can't, even in today's tech environment, right? Being the smartest one in the room, like that doesn't actually help anybody. You have to actually make decisions together and then execute because strategy is nothing without strong execution. Yeah. Execution is everything. Even right. if your strategy is off, you can still win if you execute really, really luck. well. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. And so I learned that from Sun. Disagree, but commit. Yes. And be one team, no matter what. And I took that with me through my whole career. And I stopped being a consensus leader of, oh, I want everyone to be on the same page and let's make sure we're all getting along. No. We got to make really good decisions. And then if you are truly a team player, we will spend time debating. We will spend time seeking the right answer. But when we make a decision or it has to be made by a certain person because you can't come to conclusion, you have got to have the value to disagree and commit and you go out there and execute like crazy. And I know, there is one really particular story from Jive where that happened with the team. And because we were able to disagree but commit, and execute on that decision, it was our way out of what our issues were. Mm. And I remember it because there were a couple of people who I didn't know if they were going to make it. And I had, and I had that conversation. I learned that from son. Well, and you got dealt a very, very tough hand at Jive. And the fact that you were able to land the plane at all is pretty much a miracle. I missed the on. product. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a great product. It was fantastic. Yeah. We could we could use it in many companies, but yes, it was a it was a it was a good time. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch on, Lisa? Before we wrap, up to you. I'm well. Good. Let me ask you one other question. Um, how do you think about category design and category creation? 
Well, you're the master in that. And you've done an incredible job in the, th- the companies that you've gone and created those categories. So the way I think about it is um, it's no fun being number two. <laughs> and so whatever category you're in, you figure out how to be number one or get yourself your own. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. Anything else? It was great being on your oddcast, Chris. <laughs> your crack up. It was so much fun. You can come back anytime. Oh, I can't wait. You're spectacular. I'm psyched. It's so fun. I'm so glad to have you in my life now. It yeah. is so nice after all these. I know. We kind we of were circled like each other for a few years. Barely and ne- half a degree know. of separation. Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly, boom. And I'm, I'm psyched for no, it. No, but it's weird because, and this, you know, uh, I, I talk about this somewhat, the value of a reputation and the power of a reputation. I felt like I knew you before I met you. I felt like I knew you before I met you. Like there's been nothing about you as I've gotten to know you that surprised me because your reputation <laughs> foreshadowed who you are. That's fantastic. Isn't that interesting? It is. We know a lot of the same people. So apparently they were honest with each of us. <laughs> Which is good. <laughs> well, thank you, Lisa. This has been absolutely fantastic. You're a legendary, uh, you're a legendary gal, and I'm glad to have this time with you. I had fun. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary Elisa Steele. Uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, uh, I would deeply appreciate it if you shared this episode. Uh, approximately eighty percent of our listeners say they heard about this podcast from an existing listener. And so I want you to know how much we deeply appreciate you sharing. All right. We would like to thank the incredible Elisa Steele. Also, our friends at the Mission Daily Podcast. Get your daily dose of news that matters. Sign up at the mission.org. Play Bigger, my first book, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Why don't you pick up a couple hundred copies today? Uh, one of my favorite nonprofits, OneLifeFullyLived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. Another podcast I love with a tech industry luminary. Uh, luminary. Don't you love that term? Don't you wish you were a luminary? Bob Evans. Check out Cloud Wars Live. And I'm, um, I'm a regular guest on Cloud Wars Live. And I always look forward to my conversations with Bob. Check it out wherever you get legendary podcasts. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Well, maybe it's time to check out the power of a virtual assistant with my dear friends at bottleneck.online. Check out bottleneck.online and scale yourself. And another nonprofit I love, donorschoose.org. You can make a difference to classrooms and kids all around the country at donorschoose.org. Check them out. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we'd love it if you shared the shit out of it. All rights do remain perturbed. And we must warn you that clearly this podcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced by the legendary Jamie J and Sarah Knox, edited by the incomparable Mike D, and show notes by the, uh, what's a good word to describe Diane? The tenacious Diane Gervasio. <laughs> Special shout-outs today to... Um, Bruno Pisano, uh, Lori Felker-Jones, and Wendy Mueller. Thank you so much for your kind LinkedIn notes. Also to Jeff Blaine, uh, Sybil Klein-Michael, Al Sargent, Francesco Peretti. I want to thank you all for your wonderful emails. And to Lorraine Fox, Dr. Sean Peterson, Sherman Moore, uh, Greg Canty, one of my favorite marketing guys, 
Andrew and Andrew Smallwood, all for your wonderful support on social media. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Richard Smith, former CEO of Equifax. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. And until we're together again, follow your difference.